So I got a picture to show you here. It's one that years ago, I was over at school in Michigan, and they had this whole wall that was covered with this beautiful picture. And guess what it had on it? It had Jesus on it. Let me show you part of it. Well, this part doesn't have Jesus on it, does it? You see this world over here? That's, those are the three angels going around the world, the message of Jesus going around the world. And this is a picture of Ellen White on the far left. And here's a guy named William Miller. I'm not related to him. But he preached about how Jesus was coming soon. And all these people back here were preaching about it in the far back. Well, Ellen White had a dream. And in this dream, there was a path. You ever go for a hike anywhere? And you get a narrow little path to walk on, maybe? I know up to uh, one of the waterfalls, some of the paths go along an edge. And I tell my kids, stay away from the edge there. Well, this path was going along an edge, and it was really steep down there. But as long as they kept their eyes fo pointing forward, they could see the light from behind them would shine on the path. And guess who they would see in front of them? Who do you think they would see in front of them? That's right, they would see Jesus right there. And that path would lead all the way to the beautiful place that God prepared in heaven. So what do you think that means for us? See all these people continuing to go? Jesus has shed light on their path, and they're going all the way to this beautiful light down at the end, which represents heaven. And so, where's heaven? Well, actually, it's a place up in heaven, Jesus says in John 14. He's building it right now. He's preparing a place for us, and it's going to come down to this world. So heaven's going to be here eventually. But we have to keep following Jesus all the way until that beautiful city comes back down. And so Jesus told them, I will guide you all the way. And he sent people along the way to remind them, stay on the path, stay on the path. And guess what happened when the path got really narrow and they started trip, almost tripping on, on and falling? Well, Jesus put a big rope down beside them and they were to hold on to those ropes and get past those, those spots along the path as well. Yeah, it says down at the end, Ellen White, which is that one at the beginning, she grabbed onto the rope. And, mm -hmm, back here, over here is heaven on the right. And see the doves there, the Holy Spirit guiding us? Well, they got down to the end there, and that rope that helped them stay on the path, they took it and they swung over into that beautiful land. It said James White and Ellen White both swung over to that beautiful land. So this is a dream that somebody had years ago about getting to heaven. We need to stay on the path and let Jesus guide us all the way over to here. And your parents will help you do that, and we'll help you do that at church. And God will send people along the way to remind you as well. So maybe we should pray and ask Jesus to guide us all the way, huh? What do you think? All right. Dear Jesus, thank you so much for your love. Thank you that you provide a clear path for us to follow from the Bible. And we pray that you can give each one of these children, and the children who aren't here today for sickness or whatever reason, a clear path so they can keep following and help them along the way, Lord. Help them through us as adults, as parents, as church members, to guide them along the way and encourage them, we pray. And Jesus, we look forward to the day when we'll swing over into that beautiful new land and step over there and be with you forever. Guide us all the way, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, here's your sheet for today. And there'll be an answer up on the screen. You can look for it, okay? Or you can just draw on it if you like. And we don't know exactly when that day will be, but it'll be a day when God's will will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And so we invited um, Paula and Donna to give us special music today. Thank you so much for sharing this beautiful song with us. And hopefully we can stay focused on Jesus all the way.
temptation, but deliver us from me. Father, we look forward to the day when that prayer will be an ultimate reality, a clear reality in this world. But until then, Lord, we pray you lead us and guide us to stay on this path, and may this sermon be just an encouragement along this journey, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're beginning a several-part series here called Prophetic Guidance in the Advent Movement. Prophetic guidance meaning that we believe God has given us a prophetic gift and, and given us encouragement along the way through that gift. But we are a movement. We are on a journey as well. And so you're going to find, I'm going to kick it off here this morning, but our elders are going to tag team it with me for the rest of the month and into October, highlighting different facets of our heritage and our belief. And so as I think of this topic here today, I think of a journey that I took a while back, not on necessarily a narrow path like Ellen White saw in the vision, but a path up Mount Lassen. How many of you guys have been up to Mount Lassen, the top? Some of you went up there recently. I remember Pathfinders had that outing. And Jake, I think it was his first time going up. But it's, it's a journey up there. Althea, you went up too, didn't you? Yeah. I remember I got here in 2012. And as I was coming into California, I came in from Reno area. And the conference asked me, why did you fly into Reno? And I said, well, it's cheaper that way. It was, it was, cheaper. It was more of a hassle for me, but it was cheaper that way. And they didn't quite understand that because in the Midwest... You eat at Taco Bell and turn in a receipt instead of taking per diem, instead of taking a, a, a daily allowance. So I, I, I went this other route because of a flight I was, thought that was the way to go. And I remember as we made our journey back to California, we came the same way through Reno area. And this was the side I saw. And I saw Mount Lassen in the, in the distance. And I said to my wife, I'm going to climb that mountain. And <laughs> we've climbed a few mountains in the Midwest. One was 7,000 feet over near the Black Hills. The other was in the Medicine Bow Mountains, close to 12,000 feet. So I thought, you know, I can do this. And I even had a kid on my back, so I could easily do this one. So I got to Mount Lassen. My wife and kids were camping. I pulled my camel pack out, if you will. It's got that bladder with water in it. It, it had survived the move out to California. I had filled that thing up full of nice, fresh spring water from my house. Happy Valley's got that good water from up uh, in the Trinity Alps. And as I got down to the base of the trail, I began to hike this trail, and I thought, this is steeper than I thought. I mean, I, I got over the top of that area where the parking lot is, and over to where the snowbanks are, and I looked up, and I saw all these people going up, and I thought, oh, this, this kind of reminds me of, of a section of that big mountain I hiked over in, in uh, 
medicine bow over in, in Wyoming, but it kept going up. And so I thought, okay, this, this, no, no problem. I'll just take my time and I'll get up there. I don't, I have no, I've got no kids on my back. I've got hardly anything in my backpack other than the water and the food. So I started up that. And as I got up a little ways, of course, you know, you take a break and you start taking a drink of that water. And the water tasted like plastic, like the, like the camel pack had melted in the move from Nebraska out to here. So it was this you ever taste that water that just totally is ruined by plastic? It was that flavor. And so I started taking sips every once in a while, and I just finally said, ah, I can't handle this anymore. And I had one water bottle in my backpack, a little red one, that I still carry around when I'm, before I preach. And I said, well, this will, make me, this, will, this will take me up to the top of the mountain. I got enough water here. Now, you know that's not enough water, especially when, when you're hoofing it up there and you're sweating along the way. I finished that bottle and a few more switchbacks, and I'd drain the last drop, and I thought, oh, I can do this, though. And I started scraping the tops of snow along the way, and I started shoving that into my water bottle. And you say, well, that could be bacteria or whatever. I didn't care. I wanted to get to the top of this mountain. And really, if you scrape down, I've never had trouble after I've scraped down into the snow. Most of the bacteria is up towards the top. At least that's what I used to think until I learned about the peak, pink bacteria. And so I began to use this snow to get me up to the top of the mountain. And I kid you not, there were times when, I mean, it takes a while for that snow to melt. You know, you're, you're sitting there and you're hoping that will melt and it's all packed down in there. And it's taking a long time to do it. And so you're, you're eating snow as you go along the way. And you're, every snow bank you come to, everybody else is dreading it because they're slipping along. And I'm just like, oh, good, more, more water. And if I could have had somebody at that moment come along to me when I'm waiting for that water to melt and to actually drink that water and say, here, here, here I've got a water bottle for you brand new Ozark Trail or whatever water bottle. I wouldn't care what version it was. I wouldn't even care if it was tap water that they had just filled up in a, in a bottle of some kind and handed it to me. I would, have, I would have grabbed that, wouldn't I? It'd be crazy not to do that. I'd be like, water, water, yeah. Of course, I didn't ask anybody along the way for help. And that's really the point of where we're going here today. Oftentimes, we have a specific need spiritually. And... And sometimes it just is our own knowledge that we have that. And yet God will somehow along the way send us help. And in fact, wouldn't it be so refreshing if He sent the very help you needed without you even having to say that along in this journey? Now, if you've lived long enough and you've been a Christian long enough, you know He does that. He will send the experience you need. He will send the individual you need right at the very moment when you need it the most. Even when you're waiting for that water to melt in your water bottle. Well, He didn't do it for me on that mountain. But I believe he does it in the spiritual journey because if we think about it crucially, the drought may be over here in Northern California as far as rain goes. But spiritually speaking, it still remains. We know it from our own experiences and our own needs. We see it in our own families sometimes when people maybe aren't as close to the Lord as they want or maybe there's something happening in our lives that's hindering us from having that deep, refreshing experience that we remember having maybe in years past. Or maybe we just look around in society and we see all the crucial needs and think to ourselves, Lord, please refresh this thirsty land. I believe he's going to do it. And I believe he has done it in the past. We have plenty of evidence of this, especially as we look at this idea of prophetic guidance. God has placed certain people in certain contexts with a certain message for that time. And as I look at in Genesis chapter 3, for instance, you find who is the first prophet, if you will in the Bible. It's God Himself. In Genesis chapter 3, mankind has fallen. 
And what does God do? He closes the distance in the cool of the morning. He comes to them like he's, he always has in the morning and refresh their souls. He comes to do it again. They're in hiding. And in that great need, what does he do? He speaks words of not only censure to tell them you've gone the wrong way, you need to go this way, but also of encouragement. There will come someone who will crush the head of the serpent and will also be wounded. So God is the first prophet, if you will, the first messenger after the fall of the human race. We find no record of angels, no record of any other in individuals coming to Adam and Eve. It's God himself coming to them and delivering a message of hope and saying, I can guide you the rest of this journey. In fact, I'm willing to die for you in this journey. That is somebody you could trust. That's, that's like handing me a 40-ounce bottle of water on Mount Lassen. And I bet you I'll preserve that thing the whole way up. And so I believe this first prophecy in the Bible is referenced to, to God and to Jesus. It was sent to, sent to remind them, refresh them, strengthen them, encourage them. Can you imagine if, after they left the Garden of Eden and God, it says the Lord, stationed the flaming swords and the angels there? The Lord himself did it. And he watches them go. And every time they, they would look back, they would see him. Every time, even if he wasn't personally standing there, they would remember the promise that I'm going to do whatever it takes to bring you back. And so not only would he make the promise, not only was the message for their time, it was a message for their time specifically, but it would go on down through time as well. And so prophetic guidance continued after the fall. God himself would come, speak to individuals, but including Noah, he talked to Noah, told Noah to build that ark, and that's personal involvement from God. But he also gave Noah a message. You know, this idea of prophetic, uh, uh, this idea of God sending a messenger to help guide us, messenger guidance, guidance, if you will, came through Noah for many years, did it not? And you find in Genesis this record that the Spirit of God will not always contend with man, for his days will be 120 years. I mean, either it's the shortening of man's lifespan, like some believe, or it's this idea of the Spirit of God has a probationary time for humankind before the flood came, comes. And as I compare that with Peter, where it talks about the Spirit of God going to the people in Noah's, days, Noah's day who were in prison, I believe it's the message. The message was given a time period. A time period. And Noah, we find, not only built the ark, but delivers that message to them. Helps them see that there is another way they could go. And you all know the excuses they probably could have given. We give them all still today. You know, God's really not serious about that. A loving God really wouldn't do that. Um, you know, God's not really that particular. Yeah, Noah, I really don't believe it scientifically. You could think about all the reasons they could give to ignore that message. But can you imagine... The zoo-like atmosphere of seeing animals come out of nowhere and two by two and, and, and pairs basically come into that ark. And then you begin to say, hmm, must be something to this. The scientists are thinking, well, I can't explain this. In fact, I was watching a video this week about how they were trying to figure out how plants communicate with each other. I mean, they can't scientifically wrap their minds around things and so they say, well, it's just nature but really it's evidence of God. And the same thing happened that it boggled their mind to see these animals coming and getting into that boat. And then as the raindrops began, 
Imagine you were one of the ones who made the excuse not to get into that boat, not to go that way. God had sent every reminder all the way to, to a mysterious, seemingly a hand shutting the door of the ark. And yet, you didn't even consider that. And the rain starts falling. Noah must have been right. The way that he pointed us, <clears throat> encouraged us to go, must have been the right way. And what's the sad thing about the story is Noah basically saves his family and that's it. The others have died before the flood, such as Methuselah and others. They prepared the way, but the world as a whole does not get into that ark, does not go into And don't give me that whole story about somehow they swam out there. <clears throat> if the devil himself would fear for his very existence during that type of cataclysmic event, there was no chance of a human being swimming out there. In fact, as you look at the local ge geographic information they call it, they say local floods have happened all over the world. And what's interesting is one of the local floods must have been higher than you know, some of these mountains that they, they, they climb these days. But it was local, right? There, there are these amazing pieces of evidence out there that this was a cataclysmic event, the likes of which you and I would still tremble if we were to watch it live on a movie. Have you ever been in a tornado where it's just you're right there in it? I mean, I don't care if you've got the best bunker in the world. You're still, your heart will still be throbbing as that tornado comes through because there I was in Nebraska, sitting there in the middle of the city of Kearney, and I was watching, wow, look at all these beautiful rainbows. You know, there's, there's some rainbows and stuff going on. And then the, 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 the sky turned that eerie kind of bluish green. And I said to my wife, I'm going to stand here and watch this a little while. But it wasn't very long before I realized that glass door that I'm looking through, my sliding glass door, I thought, this isn't, I shouldn't really be sitting here. I should really be underneath my house because we didn't have a, a real a cellar or anything. We just had the, the crawl space under the house. And I still remember as the tornado came through just north of our house, and before it did, I watched neighbors' roofs just peel off, you know. They had those staple roofs. I don't know why they did that, but anyway... They're peeling off these roofs, and things are flying through the air, and one of those twirly bob vent things just flying, flings off of my house, and I just decide I'm going underneath the house. And even when I got underneath the house, the feeling of, oh, wow, this is big. This is big. I mean, my house is shaking, and all this is going on. And my father-in-law, my wife, of course, scientist as she kind of is, decide that it's time to go out and take another look. <laughs> And I said, you're not getting me out of here. I'm staying right here. I had my water bottles and all kinds of stuff there and a pillow and some other things. And I, I'm not going anywhere. I'm right here. But can you imagine the, that type of feeling on a worldwide scale? This was a humongous event. This was a major cataclysmic event, the likes of which God did his best to tell people, this is, this is happening. Please, go into the ark. Please, he's begging them. The God who doesn't want anyone to perish watched basically as he had to make the world perish in order for it to continue to the salvation of Jesus. That's a sad thought. And we always look at the flood as, you know, God was maybe vengeful or whatever, but think about the hurting heart of God in that story. That he had given every opportunity he could and that they wouldn't listen. Down, go down to the time of Daniel, and this one's a pretty, pretty familiar story. Daniel in the lion's den. We find the record of there he is in the midst of a situation where God's message is not really honored. And yet his life, his message to kings and to courtiers 
individuals maybe from other nations as he served as maybe an ambassador and talked to some of them because he was fluent in those different languages and going to different places. Yet, there he ends up in the lion's den. I mean, the message itself, uh, those individuals who were opposing him, of course, they rejected his message, but he lifted up a standard, did he not? And that standard ended up being that Israel would end up leaving Babylon and going back to restore the worship of God. Many people would not go back from Babylon, but those who did continued on to try to restore the worship of God. Of course, you know the story of Elijah praying for that rain to come. And he sees that cloud the size of a man's hand, and of course the servant tells him, and he begins running supernaturally like Superman, if you will. I mean, he, he outruns the king on his chariot. Tells him to get on down because there's going to be a sound. There's a sound of the heavy rain. And so we find Daniel, other prophets before him. All these prophets were pointing forward to a, not just a path you should take, but an end that the world eventually will face its maker. Will you be ready? He's sending you every single warning along the way in mercy and saying, please, go this direction. Don't go that direction. As we go on down, we find John the Baptist, another example there where here he is, preaching about the repentance of sins. Jesus himself comes, and he makes it very clear the path that each one of us should take. He says, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I mean, can you imagine, there you were, that soldier who he told you basically to quit abusing people, quit killing people, all of that, and you've been baptized. And then John points you to Jesus and says, he's the one who took away your sin. He's the one who takes away the sin of the world. Pretty clear path, is it not? And so Jesus comes, and he is then the prophet. He is the one who provides the guidance for his people all the way down to the end of time because he's the one who started it at the beginning. He's the one who provides it all the way down to the end of time as well. Personally, taking his people by the hand, calling disciples, changing their names, leading them step by step all the way. Our young people have an answer up on the screen. We're going to look it up. This idea of Jesus being the prophet, this idea of an Elijah message that John preached that pointed to Jesus and that Jesus himself preached, would it come again? Matthew chapter 17. I invite you to turn there if you like in your Bible. Turning to Matthew 17. You can read about the transfiguration after you get home today. But this idea of prophetic guidance God even sending prophets to Jesus along in his journey to guide him to move forward with the crucifixion. You find here in Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17. Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. And what are we told in the book of Luke that they talked to him about? His decease. They were pointing him forward to his decease. He would die for, people on the, he would die for us on the cross. And go on down to verse 4. Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, or three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. While he was speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. And so those prophets were pointing Jesus forward to his decease, and God then says, Listen to him. Listen to this Jesus. Listen to my Son. Why? Because he's the very one who gave the message way back at the beginning in Genesis 3. He's the one who guided the prophets and helped them all along the way try to guide the people of Israel. He's the one who came in fulfillment of those prophecies that those prophets that he, he had appointed gave those prophecies. He fulfills them. 
And verse 6, when the disciples heard this, they fell face down to the ground. But Jesus came and said, get up. Do not be afraid. He touches them. And when they looked up, they saw no one except Jesus. Cloud vanishes. This voice is no longer heard. The prophets that were there pointing to Jesus vanish. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus said, don't tell anyone what you have seen until the Son of Man has been raised from the dead. I mean, if they see Jesus being raised from the dead, miracle of miracles, more likely they're going to believe this story as well. The disciples asked him, why then did the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? Malachi talked about that. Why do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? And Jesus replied, to be sure Elijah comes and will restore all things. Notice the future tense there. Elijah comes, in the Greek it's this idea of a futuristic present, and will restore all things. Future tense. So he starts out and he points them even to the future. But I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but have done to him everything they wished. In the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. So Elijah has come, John the Baptist and Jesus. Elijah will come. Who is that? Jesus is pretty clear, Matthew 28. Who does he send? He sends the disciples. I mean, there's a ragtag bunch of individuals who are eventually converted and convert the then known world, turn it upside down. So Elijah will come. Would the Elijah message come again? Would prophetic guidance guide his people down through the end of time? Jesus says so. Those very prophets who pointed to him, he then points forward and says others will come. Elijah will come. And Malachi is very clear. It happens right before the dreadful day of the Lord where the the, the firmament melts with heat. And we know that's right at the very end of time. So this prophetic guidance, this messenger of mercy, this messenger guidance that God sends along the way will be there all the way down through the end of time. And the Elijah message itself is in harmony with the message of prophetic guidance all the way down through time. And Jesus told us, especially on the road to Emmaus, he begins with the scriptures and shows them all these things which testifies of him. All of those things testified of Jesus. All of those things pointed to Jesus. The very Elijah messenger himself, John the Baptist, pointed to Jesus. Of course, you're not going to come to Jesus unless you recognize you're, you're a sinner and that you need to repent and all of that. But the Elijah message points to Jesus, prepares for his return, has a prophetic, contextualized message for its time with timeless principles. So it has a message for its time, but that message is really nothing new, per se. The principles are timeless from the very beginning all the way down. The same timeless message. And so as I think of this idea of our Adventist heritage, the word Advent simply meaning coming. Our Adventist heritage is long before the 1840s. It goes back to this time of Jesus. It goes back all the way to the garden. The, the, the Advent or the coming of the Messiah that they looked forward to. The coming of the one who would crush the head of the serpent was prophesied by the very one who would crush the head of the serpent. And so as I think of prophets heralding his first coming, the question is, will there be prophets heralding his second coming? And the answer is yes. Jesus said they will come again. In our scripture reading, Ashley read that scripture that talked about until we reach perfect unity. We have not reached perfect unity as a Christian faith. 
And I would venture to say, even as an Adventist denomination, we still need to, to venture in that direction. We need to, to, to strive for that unity. And that's really not going to take place until Jesus comes again. In its full totality. He's going to have a united people preparing the world, but he's also going to have, there's going to be hindrances along the way. And total unity will not be reached until Jesus comes again. So the prophetic gift will be present at the end of time. And in history, we find that's exactly what the prophetic gift does at the end of time. It continues to pointing people to Jesus Christ. I can't give credit to myself for this diagram, but Pauline himself, who we've been studying together with him and Graham, Dr. Graham, on Tuesday and Thursday nights with our video, he outlines three phases of judgment in the New Testament. And he says this is part of the message of, of God's last people at the end of time, the Elijah message at the end. Of course, he cites the cross and uses scriptures there, how, how a judgment and an effect took place at the cross. That's part of our, our, our time prophecy of Daniel, isn't it? That they, they, they slew the messenger of the covenant, if you will, in the midst of the week. Then he points out that when they would preach the gospel, a judgment would take place, just like in Noah's day. They would hear the message and they would receive it or not. Unfortunately for Noah's day, the ones who received it either died off before the flood or ended up in the ark, just a few of them. But in Jesus' day, he, they would preach the message, and if they chose to receive it, great. If they did not, a judgment, if you will, would occur. They would shake the dust off their feet. There is this, this record of judgment occurring. Jesus himself says in John 5 that basically you're rejecting the Father by rejecting the message about me. And then at the end, there would be, in the New Testament times, there's this idea of a last judgment. Look up in the book of Acts and other places, this, there is an idea of a judgment at the very end that accompanies the preaching. And of course, you could see judgments throughout the Old Testament. I find all three of these, the cross, the idea of a preaching, this idea of end time, all present in one place, Revelation 14. This is the, this is the message of the messengers at the end of time, that God will use a prophet or, or a guide along the way to point you to Revelation 14, 6, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel, to preach to them that dwell on the earth, to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. This is a message that's going to be worldwide. It's going to involve the gospel, which is Jesus. It's going to involve preaching, which is involving Jesus as well. He gave us that commission. It's going to mention later on that the hour of his judgment has come. Past tense. And that's reminding us of Jesus because in John 5, he said all judgment has been committed to the Son. It says, as we go on in verse 7, worship him who made. Who is that one? That's Jesus. So this last message, when I keep saying it over and over again, is, is about Jesus. I'm not a broken record. If anything, Scripture is a broken record. I'm just repeating what Scripture says. He's the center of the center of the center, if you will. We have the Scriptures we have central truths of scriptures, which we as Adventists proclaim. But in the middle of all that, who is the center? It's Jesus. And so we find we would not be here today. None of us would be here today if individuals who love the Lord were not proclaiming Jesus back, especially in the 1840s. And this is based upon a prophecy in Daniel that was heavily underscored by the teaching of the sanctuary during the 1840s. We find in the, in the teaching of the sanctuary, which Alan and others will touch more on later, there's the idea of the daily sacrifice, which would represent you would bring that lamb to 
the temple, but also you had the evening and morning sacrifices, the daily, the day in and day out sacrifices of the sanctuary, which points to Jesus' merits of his blood in heaven on our behalf. That's part of the everlasting gospel. But another part of that atone, the idea of the sanctuary was also the day of atonement. So you have the sanctuary service where day in and day out you have sacrifices that point to the ministry of Jesus, but also the day of atonement points to the ministry of Jesus. It was a day of judgment, which we find that language in Revelation 14. It was a day of cleansing, which we find the judgment language in Revelation 14. So years before this message was ever proclaimed by the, what would be, eventually become the Adventists, it was these truths were there throughout Scripture. God had placed them there for us to understand. And so some of this may be review for you, but that priest would come in on the Day of Atonement, and we find he would go into the most holy place on the Day of Atonement. There was one other time when he would go into the most holy place. That was the inauguration of the temple. And if you have a question about the concept of within the veil and all of that, we can easily handle that with a nice article by Richard Davidson that deals with going within the veil. Especially you would go at the inauguration, which would be the time when Jesus ascended to heaven. That's why he pours out the Holy Spirit. He's been anointed and he's poured it out upon his church. But he also, they also would go within the veil at the Day of Atonement. And this is what was focused on in the 1840s because they, they were studying this out and they knew that this Day of Atonement, this yearly Day of Atonement, was prefiguring something about Jesus. And so they come to Daniel 8, 14. 2,300 days. Then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Cleansing is judgment language. And so this 2,300 days would represent a period of prophetic guidance that would lead up to the great judgment day. Now I'm going to review this because some of you may have heard it, some of you may have not. Most of us have. But the 2,300 days begins at the time of Daniel because the angel says so. The time to restore and build Jerusalem all the way down to the end of time which would be completed right before the seventh trumpet. Judgment would basically be done because then you have the good and the evil at the end. No one else can decide and therefore the seventh trumpet sounds. So we know it goes all the way down to the end and it includes a lot of history. 490 of that years is specifically pointing out the time that's given to the Jewish nation before the gospel goes to the Gentiles. And that's why Stephen's speech in Acts was so long. It was a covenant lawsuit saying, you guys have sinned against not me as the messenger. Notice prophetic guidance is still there. A prophet is still there. But you've sinned against the Most High. You've broken the covenant. And that's what a prophet would bring to the nation to try to, to, try to point out that sin. But Stephen never calls into repentance. Peter does. Stephen does not. Stephen points out their sin as a prophet would do and serves as the last prophet to Israel. And so that's why we end the prophecy. The 2300 days starts back there when that decree to restore and build Jerusalem is there. And you can prove that astronomically as well. I've, I've found the resources for that. And you can go all the way down and carry it down to the end of the 2300 days, which would be around 1844. But this time period here was all pointing to Jesus. It was pointing to a time that would lead up to his baptism, his crucifixion, and eventually he would send a messenger to the nation, the Sanhedrin themselves, the council, to say, you've broken the, lawsuit, the covenant lawsuit. I, I, the covenant, and I bring a lawsuit against you. And that was Stephen. And of course, they stoned him, crushing him with stones. But the other part, that part was for the Jewish nation. This part was also about Jesus. It would lead us up to 1844. If we use this idea of a messenger coming to guide us home, 
then the last part there was a time that God was trying to, in earnest, get this world ready for his return. When you have a multi-denominational movement, Baptists, Presbyterians, just go on down the list, you can find them. Seventh-day Baptists as well. In fact, the song we sang for our opening song, a Seventh-day Baptist wrote that song. You know, these songs that we sing, that we take for granted, were developed out of a multi-denominational movement that were looking forward to the second coming of Jesus. William Miller himself was a Baptist preacher. So those individuals were looking at Jesus and saying, looking at the message of Daniel and saying, you know what? He has guided us this far. Could it be that he's going to return? And of course, we know that didn't take place. But the three angels' messages would continue on. They would begin to continue to proclaim that, that Jesus was the focus. They would recognize that they're living in the time of the end just before Jesus comes. That's why that time prophecy of Daniel is important. It helps you recognize and put an anchor down that says the last time prophecy in essence in Daniel 8.14 has expired. We are living right down at the end. The time of the end on a, on a broad scale. Not the little time of the end or the big one. 14.7, saying with a loud voice, fear or be in awe of or respect God. Now, I don't like, I, you don't maybe like the word fear or phobos as it is in the Greek, but it can be translated based on the context it could be translated as a healthy fear in a relationship. It's, it's not like saying you've got to tremble and shake or you're going to be beaten up, beaten up by this guy. There is an element that God will discipline. But it's the idea, if you look at the context of the everlasting gospel, now you're in a relationship with someone whom you never want to walk away from. That you're careful in that relationship. There is that mutual respect, especially for the one who gave his life for you. Who would take that lightly? And give glory to him. That's in our bodies and our lives, especially in our spiritual gifts, which includes the prophecy. For the hour of his judgment is come in the King James, but in the Greek, was come or has come. And worship him that made heaven, the earth, the sea, and the fountains of water. So this whole focus is on Jesus Christ. And God will have a people with all his gifts that give glory to him at the end of time. After judgment, it basically is, is, is upon us that will guide 